take first watch. the very first bonus episode of the First Watch podcast. This short episode was cut from our longer Oppenheimer conversation, which took myself, Cole, Riley, and Morgan about four hours total to record. And because of this, not everything that we talked about got to make the final cut of that conversation, including two movies presented here, Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises and Masaki Kobayashi's The Human Condition, both of which I think make great complementary pieces to the latest film by Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer. So please enjoy this special bonus episode. Finally, 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 the last stuff that I want to talk about is after I watched Oppenheimer, a movie that reminded me very heavily of a few different movies that I'm sure that we'll talk about, but I watched Hayao Miyazaki's no longer most recent feature now that How Do You Live has been released in Japan, but that is The Wind Rises. It's the story of Jiro, an aeronautical engineer who grows up goes to school, works for Mitsubishi, starts designing planes, the war breaks out, and he creates his masterpiece, the Mitsubishi Zero Fighter, aka the plane used in every kamikaze attack during World War II. He created a fleet of brilliantly designed planes, all of which crashed, burned, and killed their pilots. If you've watched much Miyazaki, you should understand the long history that he has and passion that he has for aeronautical engineering, for plane design, for flight, and how that represents spirit, inspiration, obviously filmmaking and animation in many regards. But then it has this pitch black underbelly of these are weapons of war, they're weapons of destruction. And it was the movie that Oppenheimer most readily brought to mind for me because it's this biography of this visionary guy who's just trying to kind of look the other way on the shit that his work is being used for. He's here studying macro bones and thrust and all these different things. And then ultimately, because of that, people die. And can you maintain your integrity in that situation? This was always a movie that kind of, it didn't land for me, but it was something that I was happy to revisit after Oppenheimer and all the different things that that left me with. So that was pretty much my run up to this movie. Oh, wait, shit. I totally skipped the human condition. Fuck. (laughs) I'm a dumbass. That's all right. I'm such an idiot. I'm going to keep most of what I've got here, and then we're going to segue into Morgan doing Interstellar. Mm -hmm. So the final piece of my tour of the Pacific theater of World War II wasn't really my final piece at all. I actually watched it right after I watched Harakiri and before I watched all the things that I just got done talking about. But that is what is, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of the people who have seen it on this podcast, Sans Morgan, who has seen Harakiri, but not this, Masaki Kobayashi's The Human Condition, which is, either way you look at it, a nine and a half hour epic saga about Kaji, a Japanese humanist leftist trying to navigate the perils of World War II, or a trilogy of films that are each about three plus hours long. Yeah, this uh, completely bowls me over. Yeah. <laughs> when I watched it all together, I watched it over, I think it was two days or something. I just decided to break it down because I was like, I can't do nine and a half hours. I'll break. Yeah, it was two days for me. Yeah. But just as a depiction of trying to stick to your morals in war when all sense of humanity goes out the window, I found it to be a terribly compelling film. Particularly for me. So it's split into those three pieces. In the first piece, Kaji is a civilian. He's trying to avoid 
being drafted into the war. He's trying to avoid becoming a soldier. And so he takes an offer that he knows is tainted to become basically the personnel manager of a labor camp in Japanese-occupied Manchuria, where he will just govern over the living conditions and working conditions of heavily, heavily exploited occupied people, and eventually prisoners of war who are brought to him by the Imperial Japanese Army. And that entire movie, Kaji is not a soldier, and it is by far my favorite of the three. That opening piece immediately solidified the entirety of the human condition as one of my favorite movies of all time. Because it's just like, before we've even picked up our rifles, we're exploring what it means to be complicit in the exploitation and death of other people just by living your plain old regular fucking life. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, yes, <laughs> that's a fucking picture. Comparatively for me, the second film where you actually get into Haji basically resists the establishment as much as he can to try to spare life, to try to improve the conditions of these prisoners. And for this, they reward him by drafting him and making yeah. him a private in their army as the war quite specifically is turning against the Japanese. Mm -hmm. He becomes a private, not during some beginning point when they're invading, but very much at the end when they're being pushed back out by the Soviets. Second movie very heavily involves Kaji in training. And then you kind of go from training to him being like, as he puts it, like the shepherd of the sheep of the Japanese army. So it's like training, training, training. So it's still not like a lot of like pew, pew, battle, battle stuff. Yeah. It's definitely the weakest segment, but even mm. then it's still really damn good. It's one of those, like if you look at it as a standalone movie, it's a really solid war movie, heavily, heavily, heavily inspirational to such films as like Full Metal Jacket, mm -hmm. quite obviously mm -hmm. with that half and half kind of structure that it has with the training oh, yeah. stuff. Kubrick was stealing from all the fucking 60s Japanese new wave directors right under our noses and God bless him for it. <laughs> Cole, you mentioned like one of the underlying ideas of the human condition is, you know, how do you maintain or uphold your moral code, you know, in this kind of environment? But I mean, it, it also gets into a little bit of to what extent is your moral code permeable? Mm -hmm. How much integrity does it actually have? Right. And how do you negotiate the flexibility of that? How do you negotiate how that can change and how that is not necessarily something that can withstand and hold steadfast in the face of everything that the world demands of you? And the inherent conflict between the idea of upholding a moral code that goes beyond you and beyond human beings with also the instinct to survive and the desire to live and the desire and the beauty of life. How do you reconcile that internal motivator from which you derive you know, your sense of wonder and your sense of joy and your sense of passion with the fact that ultimately perhaps the core of, of the code you live your life by might dictate that you not survive. Yeah. I think one of the things that comes up even before survival per se is in that first movie, Kaji arrives at the camp. There's a labor person, like a Japanese worker who is in charge of labor, who is abusive to these prisoners, like dreadfully abusive to them. Kaji gets in his face and he wins him over. He's like, no, okay, we'll try it your way, new guy. We'll try to be more empathetic. And then that character becomes his strongest ally over the course of all three movies. Like he's not an ally for all three movies. What I mean is the strength of their alliance is stronger than any of that which he builds at any later point. You have to learn on some level to compromise with people who do not have the same level of integrity as you 
or have the same morals as you, because in order to achieve anything in the face of this much destruction, you have to be willing to make concessions. That's what we see from the prisoners of war. They're disgusted with Kaji, but they have to work with him in order to survive. That's what has to be done. That reminds me of like this one of the bigger technicalities of World War II movies. Probably my favorite is Schindler's List. I don't know how much Holocaust counts as like World War II designation, but that is the entire thesis of that film that I love is like, you have to, as Itzhak Stern, work with the Nazi Oskar Schindler. You have to, as Oskar Schindler, work with the Nazi Amon Goethe to get anything done. In order to save any lives, you have to completely compromise everything about yourself in a life or death situation, which you've been put into. And, you know, regardless of how interesting those ideas are, God damn, it's dramatically compelling. Tatsuya Nakadai, who, it, it, main mm. actor of Harakiri, main actor here that plays Kaji, holy shit. <laughs> like, He's incredible. Nine and a half hours has you in the palm of his hand. And this is his first ever leading role. He had acted in films before this, but primarily as like, you know, a Yakuza guy, as like some thug. And in this, he's playing like, uh, in, in his own words, like just a character that was so much more heroic and noble than anything that he'd done before. And then I think mm-hmm. the movie just does so much to explore his bravery, but also the limits of his bravery and mm. gets really complicated. Mm. An extension of that idea as well that I like, and I think that ties into Oppenheimer nicely as well, is like how difficult it is, you know, as a human being to entirely override and disregard the trappings of ego. You have this moral code you want to live by, you have this kind of humanist goal you want to realize, but every necessary compromise, every necessary capitulation creates a kind of internal struggle within you and the sense of, you know, like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And there's all this battle that's going on internally that in order to overcome you need to realize you know how i feel and what's going on internally for me and my personhood and my ego none of that matters Mm -hmm. i need to be able to tether myself i need to be able to cut myself from that completely in order to realize what i'm doing but there's this like inherent condition of being human where we are Mm self-concerned where even when we act you know um even we act uh, what's the word for selflessly that I'm trying to think of? Well, I'll just say selflessly. Even when we act selflessly, even when we act, you know, for others, we it, it is an active struggle to shed yourself from self-concern, you know, from the extent to which you're doing it for yourself. And so when you have to, you know, compromise, when you have to do things that feel like they are, you know, butting against your hardwired code for what is right and wrong, you ultimately have to kind of get over yourself. And that that can be one of the most difficult parts of it is to kind of realize that well, how I feel inside is not relevant to the consequences to the real world materialist stakes here i just need to do what needs to be done why the fuck is that word alluding me to it's um um, altruism (laughs) yeah that's it thank you altruism (laughs) i was like why the fuck (laughs) yeah so the third episode of this basically is like the way that i described it It it's like the first one is a pained lament it is from the perspective of somebody who's not even in the war yet i kind of think the first movie has the most intense content Because you basically just have this young man who is thrust into a leadership position and witnesses the complete depths of human depravity and the like the face of human suffering. The second movie, interestingly, once you're in like the flow of the entire movie, feels like a step back. It feels like once he gets into the military, because you've got that like, okay, now you can just follow. 
you don't have to worry about the weight on your soul because you're not making fucking decisions anymore. You're just a little soldier going along to get along, doing the best that you can. And it's like a training context. So while we see some abuses by the Japanese military to their own, and even Full Metal Jacket nod, the um, the horror of it is toned down. And then the third movie is just sort of like the grim reality. It's the end of the war. It's these doomed battles. And then eventually it's the odyssey to the rest of this movie's Iliad of Kaji's quest to try and get himself home, no matter what, under these mm. contexts. And he eventually, one of the things that I found interesting is that you end up, it's karmic. At first he sells his soul to become the warden of a prison to keep from going to the military. And then he goes to the military and then he ends up a prisoner of war himself, but for the Russians. And it confronts his leftism. It confronts his communist ideals because he wants to turn himself in to the red army and he wants to believe that they represent a brighter future but it's this realization that like there is no brighter future from war there is no we fixed it there is no heal there is no you fucking salvaged your soul and made it it's just death 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 it's one long death march Cole, anything else any closers on that one just that it's an incredible film mm. Just like hugely loaded cast, obviously. Mm. That's the one that shook me was Chishu Ryu, the Ozu collaborator. <laughs> just like shows up at the end in this like former Japanese village in Manchuria that has been like kind of taken over and cordoned off after the Soviets have retaken this area for the Manchurians. <laughs> and then you just see him and you're like, what the fuck? That was a real like Leo boy to get the screen moment for me when, when I yeah. first saw that film. <laughs> like wait what are you doing out here dude go back where the fuck is satsukohara yeah you should be drinking tea <laughs> get out of here <laughs> <laughs>